Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And Rory, I want to start with an apology to our listeners when we get things wrong, we always admitted it. And I don't know why I said this, because I knew even after I said it, it was wrong. But anyway, this is from somebody called Anne Onimus. Anne Onimus? Oh, Anonymous, I see. Ah, very, very funny. Anne Onimus says, You were very poorly informed about the Police Service Northern Ireland data breach. The release of the data was in response to a Freedom of Information request. It was not due to a cyber attack. It reportedly went through five separate checks before being posted. It should not have been so easy, as you suggest. It may not have been an accident. And Onimus also goes on to point out it's Catholic members of the PSNI who are at risk as a result of this breach, as they're considered by some on the far-right nationalist side as treacherous for having joined the force previously infamous as the RUC. Second part of that question, fairly loaded, Anne. What's really strange, Rory, after we recorded it, I realised I'd said that and I knew it was absolute bollocks, but I forgot to phone the production and tell them. So there we are. It went through. Just on this one. So, I mean, the, the BBC's reported on this. So essentially, there were two breaches. The first breach happened when data was made public in error in response to an FOI request and appeared online for three hours last Tuesday. And then a second data breach involving the theft of a spreadsheet with the names of 200 officers and staff emerged the following day. And that, as she says, is not a cyber breach. That was actually the theft of a police issue laptop and radio from a private vehicle. But it's somebody, a second person has just been arrested by Northern Ireland police. So taking it very seriously. But it's a reminder to all of us, because if you read too quickly these stories, it says a major data breach. One's immediate assumption is that it's a cyber attack, not that somebody's releasing it in response to a freedom of information. No, but I knew because I remember remember thinking at the time, who on earth would have released that as an FOI? So anyway, slapped wrist for me and um, I'm blaming the heat. Now, the next one is you, populism in Portugal, Tome Ribeiro Gomes. Rory teases with the Portuguese exception to the populist way, but you ended up not going into it on the podcast. The populist Chega party has grown rapidly over its short existence. And indeed it has, Rory. It's now the third political force. And I sort of knew that when you said it. And I thought, maybe he knows more than I do here. But, you know, they're going into the European elections and they're currently at 13.2%, which isn't bad for a, you know, smaller party. They've got 12 seats in parliament. And even though they've got none in the European Parliament, on, the, on that voting, they, they gained three or four seats of Portugal's share in the, in the European Parliament. And they are pretty right wing. I mean, they've, they've got similar yeah. white supremacist, slightly neo-Nazi roots. Well, it's, it's definitely true. They do have this party. But Portugal has had a different history to other European countries. And I don't want to overdo it. But I think that you can make a case that Portugal's been a really remarkable example of moderation. Yeah. You presumably are cheered up by the fact that the two main parties are the Socialist Party and the Social Democratic Party. Absolutely. <laughs> Suarez has done pretty well. I mean, you know, so yeah, they're, they're, a, they're a rare success story on the more progressive side. It's worth looking at them. Maybe we should look at them a bit more. So obviously Guterres, who's the UN Secretary General, was was their leader, Antonio Costa in now. But people often sort of think about them as though they're just a sort of subset of Spain. But in fact, their historical experience is a bit different. Yes, like Spain, they were under a dictatorship to the early 70s, but it wasn't a dictatorship that, like Franco's, it wasn't one that tried to crush 
kind of national identities. It didn't have quite the extreme brutality of Franco. They had a much more dramatic transition out of dictatorship. Spain, there were a lot of issues that weren't dealt with in the 70s that continue to haunt. And you see this through moving Franco's body and stuff. Unlike Spain, they didn't grow into this huge housing bubble. And Spain, of course, has massive automobile industry, wind manufacturing, tourism on a, one of the largest scales in the world. Whereas Portugal is still very much doing things like manufacturing cork, manufacturing shoes. They're also different because traditionally, a bit like Ireland, which I guess is a maybe a comparable economy in terms of size and scale until it started to grow so quickly. The problem in Portugal wasn't immigration, it was emigration. Portuguese leaving to go to other countries the way that people do from places like Romania or, or Albania. So there wasn't the same underlying stuff. And finally, I think in the financial crisis, Spain ended up with nearly 50% youth unemployment. And I think their general unemployment rate shot up to nearly twice that of Portugal's. So maybe there haven't been quite the same drivers in Portugal in terms of the 2008 financial crisis, immigration and other things. I mean, they still obviously inherit the problems with social media. They did go through a brutal situation, the financial crisis, their debt. But maybe that's part of the reason why they've, they've tended to be more moderate and more centrist in their politics since the 70s. Costa, he's now in his third term, which is pretty rare for any leader these days. But there have been a quite a lot of scandals and resignations in recent months in this third term. I think he's lost double figures now. He's, he's, he's lost ministers and secretaries of state, which is almost Boris Johnson level, um, <laughs> and, and partly to do with some issues of corruption and also past conducts. But, you know, I think that you're, you're broadly right that we're talking about a pretty successful progressive government. We should thank our eagle-eared Portuguese listener for pointing out that we didn't go back to something that we said we were going to. So thanks for that. Very good. Okay, next question coming in from Siddhartha Kare. What are your predictions for the Republican primaries? Any thoughts on the Reagan-oriented Vivek Ramaswamy? Is this the guy that everybody's talking about with the big money coming behind? Yeah, so Vivek Ramaswamy is very, very young. I think he's in his late 30s. He is famously kind of fast, eloquent talker. He is an extreme isolationist. He seems to want to have America to have almost nothing to do with the world at all. He's, I think, said that if America manages to um, get independent with semiconductors, then there's, there's no point in them defending Taiwan at all. And as Ron DeSantis loses some of his momentum and energy, people are beginning to focus more on Vivek Ramaswamy. Well, I, I don't know much about him at all. Uh, so I'm, I'm bound to your superior knowledge on that one. I, look, I, I, I feel that Unless these legal cases against Trump really do him, I think he's going to be the candidate. It's not that long ago people were talking about Ron DeSantis as being the great white hope. As you said yesterday, he's virtually vanished. I see Trump's not turning up for the first debate. Chris Christie had a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful put down on, on him about that, basically saying that he was both useless and a coward. So there are some sort of voices coming out telling the truth about Trump. Very good. James Thompson. In light of GCSE and A-level results, in your well-traveled and worldly opinions, which education systems from which country is the most fit for purpose and effective? How should we measure success in schools? We had quite a lot of questions about education this week. Jack Harris, seeing as the education as, as secretary has admitted that A-levels and by extension exams are pointless in the long term, I was wondering if you could define the point of education. I don't think she was quite saying that. She did say something, I think, rather odd for an education secretary on the day that exams were coming out. She said, in 10 years' time, nobody will care. I think that is a very odd message for an education secretary to put out there. Well, I'd defend her for a second, because I think one of our questioners actually defended her, didn't they? 
it is true that by the time you're 10 years into the workplace, people don't pay any attention to what your A-levels were. Yeah, but is that a sensible thing to say on the day that kids are sweating over their exams? I just thought it was a very, very odd thing to say. Okay, even though it's true. Well, it's true in some regards, but you still have to go in. I mean, particularly in the modern world, people are having to apply for jobs for most of their lives. So I think it does matter. So I, it's partially true, but I thought it was a very glib and silly thing to say on the day that, you know, everybody's getting the exams. On the main point, let me just say, the countries which overwhelmingly top virtually every big global education survey you see are Canada, Finland, South Korea. And I'll tell you the one that's coming up big time on the rails is uh, Estonia. And they're all different. But I, if I can think of three things that I think they really drive through their system, one is no segregation, whether that's by class, whether that's by private public, whether that's by grammar, they all tend to want to go to the same schools. The second thing, which I think is the most important, is that they really value teachers. And that is not just reflected in pay. And the other thing is that those teachers are not on a totally constant treadmill of exams and inspection. And the third thing is there's some strong system of local oversight. And I think they're things that we've weakened. Tell us a little about the local oversight. So it's not all done from the centre, it's more devolved down to the local authority? Yeah, the local authorities have real power. They're properly funded from the centre, but then there's real local oversight of, of, of schools. And I think that we have got our system much more centralised than it used to be. But I think this point about teachers is fundamental. You know, we do seem to have had over the last few years in particular, a sense of government and the educational sort of authorities being at war with teachers. And I just think it's not the way to go. Teachers have got to be valued in a way that at the moment they're not. So I think that's the answer to James's question. Those countries which value their teachers make everybody feel ownership of the schools that they go to. I think Canada and Finland in particular, I don't know about South Korea, but Canada and Finland, there is virtually no private education market at all because they know that they can go to good schools. Everybody knows they can go to good state schools. So there's no point paying a lot of money if you can get a good education anyway. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so what did politics teach you about yourself? Amy Gandon, what did you most learn about your own character during your time in politics? What positive and what negative traits did it bring out in you? Oh, Lord. And any more of one than the other? It definitely brought out my obsessiveness. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think there were times where it was good and there were times where it was bad. I think it definitely played into my sense of tribalism. Although you would argue I still have a lot of that, I can tell you I have a lot less than I used to. I think it made me quite intolerant at times. I think it made me, I often, and I still have this, I often will analyze something and see a problem so clearly that I just cannot understand why people don't, other people don't see it the same way. And that is always a mistake in politics. Uh, what about you? So I found politics very, very damaging, very damaging for my kind of body, mind and soul. I think it's a, a world that doesn't really encourage stepping back and having the space for critical thinking. I also learned the flip side of that, which is I learned my weakness, which is too much of a tendency to get into the details of things. I became a better minister when I was able to really boil down my thinking to a simple position, a clear, simple position. And initially, I sort of slightly despised that. But I realized that actually it was moments when I was able to say, for example, in prisons, I will resign unless I bring violence down in a year. A simple statement like that really gave me the kind of entry point into doing the kind of things that I wanted. So it's a very, very strange profession, though. I think it's um, it's not just social media. I think the whole emphasis on campaigning 
the whole style of political argument pushes against what we need, which is careful, thoughtful policy analysis. So I found it very, very difficult. But in a way, you're saying that that was because that is your character and your character didn't change. And that's why you found it difficult. So that's maybe not a bad thing. So no, I think parts of my character probably did change. I probably became a bit more fragile, a bit more insecure, a bit more needy. I mean, after five years on the backbenches, I began to notice to my eternal shame that I was sending kind of creepy texts to David Cameron, congratulating him on his latest speech in the hope that he might promote me. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. I see. Okay. So that is not you. Yeah, that, that I did not think was me. No, I, I went in thinking I was a pretty kind of independent, secure figure. And I sort of stood up to Cameron and I disagreed and I rebelled, uh, you know, big vote about the House of Lords. And I tried to chart my own course. And then as the years rolled on and I found myself stuck in the horror of the backbenches, I began to discover this, a more creepy ambition emerging, which made me pretty ashamed of myself. My book has been about trying to get people involved in politics. I hope you don't sort of go around the country Willie Wyler used to say, "Stirring up apathy." <laughs> stirring up apathy. <laughs> he used great... to say that was. He used to say that was his job was to go around the country stirring well, up apathy. My my great theory is that the way to change is to make people stare really hard at the problem, be brutally honest in their analysis of the problem, and that's actually the way to make things improve. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope you're right. Here we are. This is also really about politics and, and how it's Edward Gauthier. I've just reread. Obviously, a Tory rereads books. Marie Leconte's great book about gossip at Westminster. To what extent do you think gossip is a good or bad part of Westminster? How much did it factor into your daily roles there? I mean, the place was just full of gossip. It was really, really disturbing. One of the things that made me sad is highly intelligent colleagues, and you know, whatever you thought of them, people like Quasi Quarteng had a big brain, but it was impossible to get them to be serious. It was impossible to get them to sit down and talk in detail about policy. The whole culture of the thing was about offhand jokes, gossip, sitting in the tea rooms, looking at the newspapers, seeing which scandal had hit another colleague, gossiping about who was being promoted and who was going down. The and the culture of the journalists too, the lobby, was basically not really about taking ideas seriously or the integrity of individuals seriously. It was all about who's up and who's down. What was your experience? I absolutely hate gossip. I don't really see that as gossip. What I hate, and there's a lot of it in politics, is when stories develop about people and nobody knows whether they're true or not, and no, but nobody really cares because it's just gossip. Now, I've, I fell victim to some of those. I remember this story went, I think, have I told you this story about a story went around that I was having this affair with the Tory MP's secretary? No. And it went, it, it was like everywhere. It was like, you know, and I sort of started to see people looking at me differently and wink, wink and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, and I saw, I said, do I say anything or don't I? And you know, it was completely untrue. Now, I didn't. I had loads of stuff thrown at me all the time, so it didn't really bother me that much. But it bothered the woman a lot, and she, I think, found it very, very difficult to deal with it. And then there's other sorts of gossip. I often think about Leon Britton, the stories that went round about him that were just truly horrible. And you used to hear people saying, "Well, well, you know, no smoke without fire, no smoke without fire." But it was gossip. No, no, it's completely horrible. I, so I, I had the same. So I, I had um, a story that was put in the newspapers and was reported in the newspapers from an, a spreadsheet put out on the sexual misdemeanors of conservative MPs. And my name was listed with the name of my parliamentary assistant. So it said Rory Stewart, and then the name of the parliamentary assistant, I'll repeat her name on this, but Rory Stewart asked his assistant to do odd things. 
I, literally, I have no idea what this was. I mean, maybe she had complained to someone in the canteen that I'd asked her to go out and get sushi or something. But the implication was clearly some kind of weird sexual activity. And of course, I was, you know, I was a married man. I had kids. And for her, unbelievably shaming and embarrassing to have her name out. And I was being attacked at the same time, actually, as Dominic Raab. And I said to the conservatives at the time, I'm going to go out and challenge this. I'm going to go straight in the media and say, this is complete nonsense. I'm going to put out a Twitter statement. And I was under huge pressure from the media operation yeah, number 10 yeah. to do nothing. I can see that. Why? why? Well, because, because what happens is that if you do it, then everybody else will be expected to do it. And of course, they can only do it if it's not true. <laughs> uh, no, that would be the thing. That would be the thing. So the ones that said, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, you can't walk by him without him pinching your ass. And I, I remember the document, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember the document, yeah. You'll be pleased to know that I don't remember you being in it because there were far worse offenders. And I guess even I, at something like that, would would look at that and think I'd, I'd immediately see political advantage. And that's, again, something that's wrong with politics, as opposed to, oh, shit, this could happen to us. So the fascinating thing is how disingenuous the press team were. They didn't say to me what I'm sure is true, that that was the reason they were doing it. They said, oh, no, 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 you'll cause yourself more trouble if you put out a statement. It'll just, it'll just make more of a story of it. <laughs> I put out a statement. I completely ignored them, put out a statement on my website, put out a statement on Twitter, killed the story instantly. Nobody mentioned me again. Everybody else continued to be in a morass of problems and allegations because some of these yeah. allegations you say were true. But were true. it was a real kind of reminder of the weirdness of completely unfair, humiliating gossip. And then your own party preventing you from getting out and clearing up. And I completely agree with you. Everybody reading that would have been like, well, no smoke without a fire. I mean, really, would you say that about Rory if he hadn't done something weird? I mean, it can't actually be that he's asking her to go out and get sushi, right? And it's named her name. So she had to put out a statement as well saying, you know, Rory, I promise did not do anything weird to me. But did I pressure her to put out that statement? I mean, you know, once you start it, where does it end? The thing about gossip that God, it's so corrosive. And of course, it's so tempting in politics. If you can get a rumor going that, you know, somebody's up to no good, or you get a rumor going that you know is going to affect them psychologically or affect their private life, affect their home life or whatever, is so tempting to do. Now, I think I'm, you know, I, I, I was pretty good because I do hate it. I really do hate it. But I've got to be honest, there were there probably were times when if there was a rumor flying around, you sort of let it fly, I guess. But it's pretty horrible. It is horrible. It is. It's horrible yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right. Rory, let's have a quick break. Now, here we are, Rory. Question for Rory. This is from Holly and the EV. Can you envisage yourself being part of a One Nation Tory revival following a Conservative loss in next year's general election? Question for both of us. Is a One Nation Tory revival even possible in today's Conservative Party? This is something I think about every day. If I felt that a One Nation revival was possible in the Conservative Party, I would be standing for election at the next election. But honestly, I don't. I don't recognize my own party at the moment. I fear that when they come out of the next election, they will be taken over by Suella Braverman or someone on the right. And that if somebody like me were to stand again and try to lead the Conservative Party back to the center ground, I would find myself in a very weird, isolated position. I'd feel like Mitt Romney trying to challenge the Republican Party or Liz Cheney, that actually the party is now seized by Conservative Party members who are very, very far to the right of people like me and are deeply suspicious 
see us as traitors, see us as remainers. Would you get selected in Penrith? It's an interesting question. I don't know. I didn't stand. So, so you said, why do we never do good news? And um, you've found good news in Guatemala, where an anti-corruption candidate's won. But he's an interesting case as somebody who got, I think, 11% of the vote in the first round, made it through the second yeah. round of the presidential election, won. I think that if I had run to be mayor of London as an independent this year, I might have had a hope under the old electoral system, because it used to be like the French presidential system. If I could come second to Sadiq Khan, first round ahead of the Tory, I'd be able to win possibly in the second round. But that's been changed back to a first-past-the-post system. And one of the problems, I think, of our current system is that our parties have quite a sclerotic grip. And I feel that it would be pretty difficult, difficult to win as an independent anywhere. Maybe Penrith would have been different, but pretty difficult in most places to win any kind of conservative association at the moment. But if you say, right, so t let's take this guy in Guatemala, Bernardo Arevalo. So as you say, he starts from a low base and he ends up winning. And he does it on a, absolutely on an anti-corruption state of politics. Look at the hell of us. We've got to clean this up. And he wins. So what you're doing in a way is you're saying, okay, the Tories are going to lose, you think. Somebody like Suela Braverman's going to come in. Therefore, there's no place for me, okay, and for your sort of politics. But what that means is that the Conservative Party just keeps going in the same direction. Is there not a case for people like you, David Gork, etc., trying to get back in so that eventually the penny drops and the, and the Conservative Party goes back to being something more sane and sensible or morphs into something completely different? There's a total case for it. But if you put it in the American example, it would be, it feels to me a bit like saying to a Republican, why don't you get in and try to turn the Republican Party away from Trump? And, and when you put it in those terms, it seems kind of absurd. It doesn't seem credible that Liz Cheney or Mitt Romney are going to turn that machine around. And I don't get how you do it. I mean, David Gork and I tried. I obviously ran for the leadership trying to imagine a different type of conservative party. And we ended up just being thrown out of the party, thrown out of parliament. So I, I think it's pretty tough. I think it's possible that if they go through an experience like they did in 97, where you know they lurched to the right eventually under Ian Duncan Smith and came back towards the centre, then somebody like me could re-engage and maybe be part of a broader movement with a team that could try to make the case for One Nation conservatism again. But it feels pretty bleak. And to be honest, I'm not getting very friendly signals. You know, I don't, I'm not in a world in which Number 10 is reaching out to people like me. No, I can, I can see that. Now, can I ask you a question where you have to defend me? Yeah, yes. Delighted to do that. Are you going to do, you defend me whatever I do? Yeah, whatever you've done, I always defend you. <laughs> Sean Dexter says this, I'm just getting over seeing red mist during Alistair's dogmatic rant during the small boats discussion. Well, no, it wasn't a discussion at all, was it? Rory was trying to explore a new idea for addressing the problem and Alistair bumping his gums was not really adding value. Sure, I do love the phrase bumping his gums. But I wasn't unreasonable, was I? No, I think you had a very, very passionate case you wanted to make. And you wanted to keep the focus on your central point, which is that you thought the government was being outrageous on this issue. And you want to land a point that you thought I wasn't accepting or listening to, which is you wanted me to acknowledge that Rishi Sunak and his government are turning the small boats issue purely into political weaponization. So we were disagreeing agreeably. And you thought that I was trying to change the subject onto the rights and wrongs of immigration and, and asylum policy. And in fact, actually, there was an interesting email from one of your defenders that you forwarded to me who took exactly the opposite view. 
Obviously, I'm extremely pleased by the man with a bump in the gums, because although I signed up to defend you, I'm obviously more on my side than yours. But <laughs> here's the other side of the argument. Finally, some feeling even anger from Alistair on small boats. Of course, it ended in agreeable disagreement, because that is the nature of the trip beast, albeit highly enjoyable, sometimes education, occasionally even riveting. Rory just doesn't seem able to not defend the government at the same time as castigating them. <laughs> Excellent. Incidentally, some thoughts on very good. Am I the only one who finds it intensely irritating every time the words are spoken? So I conclude it's to do with the fact that Rory's found a way of stopping the conversation every time his small C conservative argument is on the threshold of being ripped to shreds. It doesn't help my mood. This is clearly straight out of the Etonian Debating Society playbook, a tactic which Alistair seems to fall for each time. Who was this wonderful person? Well, you, you, you forwarded it on to me. Yes, I know, but what's his name? We have, we have to give this person the name. Steve Tall, 53. Good old Steve. Good, good old, old Steve. Steve. Yeah. Let's be honest, you do do that with very good, don't you? Very good. You do. Very good. Whenever I'm really getting steamed up, you just go, very good, and move on. Very good. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's <laughs> move on. <laughs> All right, what about this one? James Ferguson, do Rory and Alistair think outdoor residential learning should be part of our curriculum for young people? And is there a chance of it happening with the emergence of outdoor education bills by Liz Smith, who I think is a Tory in Scotland? Wonderful Tory in Scotland. I actually often see her climbing Monroe's. Sam Rowlands in Wales and Tim Farron in Westminster. Tim Farron, my neighbour in Cumbria, who's a great fell runner. Have we got three outdoor education bills coming forward in the... Welsh, Scottish, and UK parliaments. I think outdoor residential learning is bloody brilliant. There's actually quite a good system that's been set up for this with some cross-party support, which it'd be interesting to see whether governments will continue to support, which is National Citizen Service, which at the core of which is basically outward bound. And it's targeted particularly at getting mixed groups of people, many of them from deprived backgrounds. It's an option to go out and spend a few weeks learning personal life skills, Good for the economy of the Lake District, because often seems to happen around places like Ullswater. But of course, it is expensive. And I think the challenge for anyone running an education policy is how do you balance the very, very good things? I mean, it's amazing what people get from that experience. If you've not done it before, it's genuinely life-changing. But of course, you know, it can cost hundreds of millions of pounds a year to fund it properly. And there's so many other demands on education. Yeah, but, you know, they found millions and millions and millions and millions to give to their mates on COVID, didn't they? That's right. All they've got to do is shake that money tree a bit more. <laughs> Come on, here's a question for you. You'll like this one because it won't make you remotely defensive. There's no way at all this question will irritate you at all. Uh, here we go. Okay. Yeah. Mason Gladys. How much damage is the perception that Peter Mandelson is heavily influencing Starmer's strategy doing to Labour's election prospects? Well, not at all defensively. In my experience, when people talk about a perception, they're talking about something that is being created by enemies who can't quite find the truth for themselves. In other words, Mason Gladys doesn't know that Peter Mandelson is influencing Starmer's strategy or not, may occasionally read it in newspapers, probably quite hostile to Keir Starmer. So that's my answer to that question. Very good. Not at all defensive. No, that was good. That was calm. That was cool. Yeah. My question is for Phil Davis. As you are both exceptional linguists, flattery will get you everywhere, everywhere, Phil, would you ever consider learning Welsh? I actually speak a bit of Welsh, you know. Do you? Go on, give us a bit of Welsh. Well, I speak what I call traffic Welsh. Go on, give us a bit of traffic Welsh then. Well, Araf. Do you know what Araf means? No, what is Araf? <laughs> I'll give you a clue. Just before you're going around a bend, you'll often see the word Araf written on the road. What do you think it means? 
slow down, slow down, slow, yeah. slow. Yeah. Um, Headloo. I don't know what pronunciation is like, but Headloo. Do you know Headloo? No, what's that? You see Headloo a lot. That's police. Guasanethau. Guasanethau. Go on then. Service station. Service the services. I'd love to learn more Welsh. I mean, it was it's important to me because it was the language of Cumbria. I mean, obviously, the word Cumbria is is Cymru. It's the for the, for the Welsh nation. And one of the things that really offends me about signage in southern Scotland at the moment is it's in Gaelic. <laughs> it says Feltigu Alba, which is completely bizarre because nobody in southern Scotland ever spoke Irish Scottish Gaelic. It's complete historical nonsense. What they spoke was Welsh Gaelic. So in fact, the sign should say Crisu i Cumru. Or you could have both. Rory, I think you're slightly missing the point here. What am I missing a point about? Well, because very few people speak Gaelic in southern Scotland, in, in the borders. Historically, nobody ever did. It was not a Gaelic-speaking part of the country. There are a few schools there now. But anyway, what it's doing is, and a bit like the Welsh do, they want to be proud of having their own language. I think you're making it quite a small part of a history. Now, there may be a massive outcry against me saying that. Yeah, there will be a huge outcry because people will point out <laughs> Ihenogled, the Old North, was this enormous Welsh civilization dominating southern Scotland and northern England. And that's where the Gdodin comes from and the famous Welsh lullaby, which is all about Derwent water. Oh, God, you can't put this all on it. Look, you're talking about a flag and a three words on a board, Rory, <laughs> as you cross the border. You can't have this whole bloody story there. Here's a question for you. How many letters are there in the Welsh alphabet? Oh, I don't know. What's the answer to that? 29. 29. What are the letters that we don't have? Oh, I don't know. And they've got seven vowels. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, we should interview another Welsh MP. One of the things I loved, it's a naff thing to say, but I loved walking into the cloakrooms of the House of Commons and hearing the Welsh MPs talk to each other. Speaking Welsh, yeah. 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 Okay, here we are. Anna Curry, do you think the September cabinet reshuffle's still on? Do you have any predictions? I used to hate reshuffle speculation stories. We had a couple of ministers who were given like dozens of different jobs, depending on which paper you read. My advice to all of our listeners in any story about a reshuffle is don't believe it. Because even if it's true, they probably don't know that it's true. And, and is, is, it, is it ambitious MPs leaking out their own names? I mean, is it basically people close to journalists saying, I, Liz Truss or whoever, am likely to be getting a job? No, I think it's more, there'll be a bit of that, but I think it's more that, by the way, I think we can rule that out. But I think it's more, we're going back to the point earlier about the discussion earlier about gossip, is that journalists go out for lunch with ministers and they all sort of talk up a few people, talk down a few people, say things like, God almighty, you should see Sunak's eyes rolling every time Tree's coffee opens her mouth. And, ooh, okay. And, and I honestly do think some of it is based on stuff as basic and simple and useless and stupid as that. The worst thing about reshuffle stories, two things. The first is the ministers think they're real. So when it says, you know, Downing Street think that so-and-so is actually really useless, Downing Street thinks that so-and-so is absolutely brilliant, that minister reads it and thinks, oh, that must be true, when nine times out of ten it won't be. It will have just been made up or kind of, you know, dressed up, flammed up with the sort of the touch of the Downing Street bit. And the other thing it does is it really kind of undermines the effectiveness of, of a minister inside a department where people sit around thinking, well, they're not going to be here very long. We don't have to worry about them too much. So it's not very good for good government. Well, I was really struck by how good people like Liz Truss and Pretty Patel were in the early Cameron eras, at making sure that they saw a lot of journalists and that their names were always in the centre of these conversations. And weirdly, Number 10 responded positively to that. I remember Number 10 saying, well, you know, one of the reasons we're promoting them is they're such good media performance. And actually, Liz Truss and Pretty Patel are not particularly exceptional media performers, I wouldn't have thought. Well, I'd say Liz Truss is exceptionally bad. But that was the line. And the line was really 
created by her proximity to journalists. Right, last question from you. My last question is from James, and it's for you, Rory. What amazing story do you have regarding governance and sustainability that really brought out the key fundamentals of governments while maintaining high levels of sustainability? Blimey, that's good. That's, I hope, a joke question on the fact that I keep grumbling about the words governance and sustainability. Because I think the point that we're getting out of that is that you can cut that question about nine different ways, because sustainability could mean environmental sustainability, financial sustainability. I mean, the whole thing is drives me around the route. But a more serious answer question is the only thing I ever did in that era, which I was remotely proud of, was introducing the plastic bag tax. I put 5p on your plastic bags, which reduced the number of plastic bags by some billions. Well done. Just on the words thing, though, are there any words outside politics that you hate? If I were to tell you, for example, that I, if somebody says the word portion anywhere near me, it's like polystyrene on glass. It's a weird word, isn't it? It's got a nasty feeling, hasn't it? I hate it. But are there any words like that that you don't like? No, I, but then you're more musical than me. But I can see that's a very unpleasant word, the P-O-R-T-I-O-N word. I've got, I've got quite a lot of words that I don't like being said near me, but that's probably number one. Portion actually does something physical to me. Yeah, I can sense that. I can feel that. Right. Well, I'll try to avoid that okay, word. Okay, well, I'm, I'm off to learn my Welsh Gaelic so that I can put a bit of graffiti on the, on the sign <laughs> as I drive through Scotland coming to see you. <laughs> Very good. All right. Lots of love. All the best. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye. 